0: Hi, and welcome to Islington Baptist Church's podcast. This is where you'll find our weekly Bible talks from our church service every Sunday. We hope you enjoy and you might like to leave us a review or rating. But you might be wondering, why do this? You know, Why preach through ideas from a book? written by a mere mortal, uh, even a nice and thoughtful guy like Glenn, uh, in church on Sundays? You know, shouldn't we be preaching from God's Word? Well, yes, and in a sense, we, what we will be doing each week is exploring what the Bible says on these topics and um, how some of these key values have come from the Bible, from biblical worldview. I'm not just going to be um, standing up here reading out chapter summaries, but we are also doing something a little bit uh, different from usual you will be reflecting on how the world that we know, our modern Western culture, is fundamentally shaped by the Christian faith, uh, the Jesus revolution, as um, Glenn um, described it in that video. Uh, see, the aim is to understand how some foundational and deeply held values in our culture are totally dependent on and really birthed by the Christian faith. In the introduction to his book, Glenn explains the extraordinary impact of Christianity is seen in the fact that you don't notice it. You already hold particularly Christian-ish views, and the fact that you think of these values as natural, obvious, and universal shows how profoundly the Christian revolution has shaped you. And we're not exploring this fact just because it's interesting. Uh, The hope is that if you're not already a follower of Jesus... This series will help you see how significant Jesus already is to the way that you see life uh, and how the claims of Christianity about God and the world and ourselves provide the most um, plausible and meaningful foundation for life. I hope to encourage you to embrace Christianity uh, more consciously and deliberately, uh, or at least consider doing that, rather than just assuming some Christian values. And if you are already a follower of Jesus, which I assume is probably the majority of us here this morning, the hope is that this short series will help us see that perhaps we have a little more in common with our neighbours than we realise. You see, in some ways, our culture has moved on quite profoundly from Christian values and assumptions, hasn't it? Uh, and, And we can be more acutely aware of these points of tension and conflict. And whilst this is true and uh, we need to be conscious of this reality, it's also helpful to appreciate uh, the significant ways that our culture continues to be shaped by our Christian worldview. Uh, and it's helpful not just you know, so that you can appreciate the good that's still present uh, out there in our, in our world, but so that you can help your family members, your neighbours, your friends, see how much Jesus uh, means to them already and encourage them to explore the Christian faith more seriously that's the hope. Uh, And now today as we begin this exploration, we're going to rewind uh, back to the world that Jesus himself was born into. Uh, See, if we're going to appreciate how Jesus has shaped our world, we need to have some idea of the world as it was. Uh, You see, it's important to grasp that Christianity was born into a world very different from ours. The (coughs) Greco-Roman world of the first century didn't share any of these values that that are explored in this book, which we take for granted. Uh, in fact they would have been seen as bizarre and unreasonable but the most bizarre the most unreasonable belief of all was the central claim of christianity that jesus saving king had been crucified hung on a cross and that this wasn't a mistake it was actually a climactic moment in his work of redemption so today we're, we're going to lay the foundation for the weeks to come by appreciating some key features of the world that Christianity was born into. But in particular, we're going to explore how the message of the cross of Christ clashed with that world and then ultimately reshaped it. Now this is a photo, it uh, should be up on the screen, of the, the front of our church building. should be fairly familiar to most of you. And um, you've probably noticed it before, but you can see right up in the, the top right-hand corner there, is a cross Uh, we have a physical replica of a cross on the facade of our building and that's normal for a church isn't it Uh, in fact it's one of the few clues that this is a church building uh, other than the word church uh, where our building doesn't look particularly churchy otherwise in our culture a cross is associated with spirituality religion faith hope love redemption that's what we immediately comes to mind when we see a cross on a building like that. Uh, in our broader world, the cross is a universal symbol of medical care, of nonviolence, um, although in that context it's come a little bit detached and reshaped, come through the Swiss flag, etc. Um, but the point is that today, and for hundreds and hundreds of years, in Western culture we associate the cross with healing, redemption, love, and hope. It's normal and expected to see it on top of a church building. But if a Roman from the first century popped in a time machine um, and ended up in our time and place, walking down the street, saw a building with a a big cross on top of it and friendly-looking people walking into this building, smiling, shaking hands, they would be very disturbed and puzzled. They might wonder, surely all these people aren't going in to be crucified. They don't look like slaves, they, they look pretty happy. Uh, maybe they're going to learn how to crucify people. But Why are they smiling? What is this disgusting organization doing in the middle of the town? Why are their children going in? See, the cross was a symbol of torture and oppression. It was the ultimate tool of the Roman Empire for keeping social order and in particular keeping slaves in their place. Uh, The famous Roman senator and orator, Cicero, he proclaimed about 100 years before Jesus uh, that um, that uh, before Jesus would have been crucified himself uh, that it was shameful for a Roman citizen to even mention the word cross in public. It was so horrific and beneath them. Uh, And so the Christian claim that the Son of God, the Saviour of the world, was a man that the Romans had crucified, it was just the most bizarre and offensive claim that you could make. As we read earlier, the Apostle Paul openly acknowledges that the message of the cross is foolishness to the world around them. The message of a crucified Messiah is ridiculous to a world that prizes power and wisdom. And we know that's exactly what people thought. Um, The oldest surviving depiction of the crucifixion of Jesus is this piece of graffiti known as the Alex Eminos graffiti. Uh, it's a crude drawing scratched uh, into a wall in Rome up on the Palatine Hill showing a man worshipping a figure on a cross, kind of holding his hand up in, in, um, in worship. Uh, and the figure on the cross, you can see, has the head of a donkey. And the caption reads, Alex Eminos worships his God. Now, the idea is pretty clear, isn't it? Translates well over 2,000 years. Alex Semenos is an idiot. He's an ass, just like his pathetic God that he's worshipping. Who on earth would worship someone who has been crucified? These Christians were a strange lot. You see, it wasn't just strange for people to see the cross uh, as a symbol of hope and love because it was literally uh, a tool of torture and execution the deeper issue was the way that the cross fit into the Roman understanding of social order. Uh, In fact, the way it fit into the whole divinely ordered reality. The first century Greco-Roman world was a profoundly hierarchical society. At the top were the gods uh, who had created humans to serve them and their needs. Uh, In the middle were various layers of Roman society, Um, uh, with the the male heads of of land-owning families at the top of the pile, uh, followed by freedmen, then women, and finally children. And at the bottom of the pile were people from other races. And then at the bottom of the bottom were the slaves who had come from those races. And the cross, it represented this hierarchy, and it reinforced this hierarchy. It was a tool of punishment reserved for slaves, to keep them in their place. It meant Roman citizens could freely walk amongst vast numbers of of slaves, you know, bustling around the the streets of Rome without fear, generally speaking, of being attacked by them. Uh, Because when slaves forgot their place at the bottom of the divinely ordered social structure, well, they were dragged off and put on a cross to remind the rest of you to just stay where you are, remember your place. Um, Glenn Scrivener in the book, He writes about one slave who rose up in AD 61 and killed his master. It was um, a Roman senator, an important guy, someone towards the top of that social hierarchy. And custom dictated that every single slave in his um, whole household be crucified, all 400 of them, including women and children. Now, apparently some balked, uh, kind of hesitant at implementing this punishment fully, uh, given how many innocent people would be brutally killed. But the majority in the Senate were persuaded by um, a guy named Cassius Caius, who argued that uh, there is some injustice in every great precedent, which, though injurious to individuals, i.e., this 400 slaves, Has its compensation in the public advantage, keeping slaves in their place. This was necessary for the public good. Slaves had to remember who they were and where their place was. It sent a powerful message, not just that they would be punished brutally if they stepped out of line, but that they could be and they should be. This was justice, it was the way things should be. Slaves were not equal to Roman citizens, they were worthless in comparison. And that's why it was just to crucify a slave who had rebelled, uh, and yet horrific to even contemplate a Roman being crucified. Slaves could be fed to the animals for entertainment or simply fed to keep them alive when grain was scarce. There are records of that happening. It was reasonable, it was fair, it was necessary to crucify such beings when the public good called for it. So you see, the gods, they're at the top of the social order, and slaves hanging on crosses were at the very bottom. And so you can imagine how crazy, how revolutionary it was for Christians to proclaim that Jesus of Nazareth, a crucified non-Roman nobody, was in fact God, the creator and ruler of the universe, and worthy of all honour and praise. A man who epitomised weakness and nothingness in the roman world was in fact the one at the top in fact christians claimed it was precisely because of his humble death on the cross that he is exalted and worshiped as we read uh, in philippians chapter 2 that that um, that hymn that the apostle paul pens or, or perhaps shares in his letter of praise to the crucified christ there he writes jesus christ being in very nature god did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant or a slave, it could be translated, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And you see the significance of that last line, even death on a cross. Therefore, For that reason, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, the Roman story is a story of power and dominance. It was all about reinforcing that social order, that hierarchy, keeping slaves at the bottom for the good of those at the top that's the roman story what's the christian story it's about a god who is at the top voluntarily emptying himself humbling himself taking the nature of a slave even subjecting himself to death on a cross for the sake of those at the bottom and in doing so he's redefined glory hasn't he because of his humility and service jesus is exalted above every other name Every knee bows and every tongue confesses to the one who was crucified. The final book of the Bible, Revelation, pictures the redeemed people of God worshipping the Lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. It's his sacrifice that makes him worthy of praise and honour. The Romans used the cross as a tool for keeping social order, but God used the cross as a tool to overturn that social order, didn't he? He used it to display his power, not in keeping others in their place, lest they rebel, you know, for, for his good, but to redeem those, in fact, who, who had rebelled against him, to act for their good at great cost to himself. And so back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, <clears throat> Paul proclaims that although the cross of Christ, you know, the message of Christ crucified is foolishness to those who are perishing, it is, in fact, the wisdom and power of God. The cross of Christ makes a mockery of human wisdom and power because it enacts and reveals a redemption that we could never achieve. Paul points out that the wisdom of the world had not been able to reach God, to know him through its wisdom. Human power, human wisdom only gets us so far. But then God, through the ultimate form of human weakness and foolishness, through a saving king hanging like a worthless slave on a cross, has revealed true wisdom and power. In Christ crucified we have access to God. He's our our righteousness, holiness and redemption. As Paul explains in verse 30, in him there is forgiveness for sin, there's victory over death. And so as the offer of redemption through this crucified Christ is proclaimed uh, and, and those appear uh, those who appear to be nothing in the eyes of the world believe and are saved. God again is turning the values of the world upside down. Paul explains, he he chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. The cross of Christ confronts the assumptions and the hierarchy of the world at the time and turns them upside down. The message of the cross creates a new value, the power of God in human weakness, the significance and worth of humble sacrifice and service. And so Paul goes on (coughs) to explain a number of times through his uh, letters to the Corinthians how the reality of Christ crucified has shaped his own self-understanding and ministry. In chapter 2, he explains that when he came to them with the gospel of Jesus, preaching salvation in his name, he didn't adopt the typical forms of, of clever and powerful rhetoric that would have been expected of him in their culture. Uh, he rejected human wisdom and eloquence and instead resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Uh, he came in weakness and trembling rather than power and confidence. His preaching rested on the power of the Spirit It highlighted the power of God in the cross of Christ rather than on wise and persuasive words. He did this so that their faith might rest on God's power rather than human wisdom. Uh, in chapter 4, he confronts their assumptions about worth and significance recounting how he is how he has suffered and been treated uh, really as garbage in this world as a servant of christ and not to provoke pity uh, but to help them understand how the power of god works in this world to understand greatness according to the gospel of jesus christ Uh, and then in his final chapters of his second letter to them he once again highlights how god's power is displayed in human weakness He boasts of the things that show his own weakness to draw attention to the power of God, made perfect in that very weakness. The cross of Christ, it confronts assumptions about power and significance as the preaching of Christ crucified brings about this powerful redemption from sin and and, and in the process it reveals the futility of human power and wisdom. (coughs) But uh, then it's it's particularly the way that the cross of Christ redefines the worth of humble service that I think has made its mark on our world. You see, if God glorifies himself through humiliating and sacrificial service of others, well, then we have a whole new way of thinking about significance and dignity for ourselves, don't we? You see, the very reason that Paul shares that hymn, praising Jesus for his humble sacrifice, in Philippians chapter 2, is to encourage the Philippians themselves to adopt the same mindset in their relationships with one another. He urges them, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to share that hymn, to describe Christ humbling himself to death for our sake. Now, thinking um, about ourselves and others like that, it's not intuitive in any culture. It's against the grain of our nature, isn't it, Uh, which assumes we are more important and our needs are more significant than others. But in our culture, we at least instinctively see how good and noble this kind of attitude and behaviour is. We value humility and sacrificial service of others it makes sense to us in a way that would have never made sense to the average person in first century Rome. And it's because we've been shaped by nearly 2,000 years of the idea that God himself might stoop to suffer on a cross for our sake. We now see that as normal, not utterly ridiculous. And so we see humility and service as greatness. Uh, I've been reading through the um, Harry Potter series with George and Grace over the past year, and we're up to the final book. Now, I I know some of you, it's a bit of a controversial thing in Christian circles. Some of you might wonder whether that's a a good idea or not. You can feel free to chat to me afterwards if you want. But it's safe to say that the Harry Potter saga has captured the hearts and minds of children and young adults, um, people of all ages, really, uh, in a way that no other book series has since, I think, probably the Chronicles of Narnia. And it's no accident that a defining feature of Harry as the hero of this saga is his humility and ultimately his willingness to suffer, to pay the ultimate price for the sake of others. Uh, From beginning to end, Harry questions his own significance and ability. Why him? He shies away from the spotlight and, and tries his best to just walk the path that he he, he believes he, he must while trying to spare others from having to share in his burden, his pain. And you see, the neglect and, uh, if you know the story at all, the, the neglect and disrespect he receives from his aunt and uncle for the first 10 years of his life, having to live underneath in a broom cupboard underneath a set of stairs, rather than ruining his chances of being a hero, it actually gives him precisely the kinds of qualities that we expect in a hero in our culture that kind of humility and willingness to suffer see harry potter would not have been a likely hero in a greco-roman saga he would be written off as weak and not worthy of devotion Uh, it wouldn't have been a bestseller just like a proud and confident harry potter who uses his strength to squash the weak wouldn't have been a bestseller in our culture Uh, in his book um, humilitas (coughs) <coughs> that's my um that's my greco roman harry potter um it wouldn't have been a bestseller uh but moving on um in his book humilitas um, christian writer and historian john dixon uh, he explains how the ancient greeks and romans didn't value humility uh, because it didn't fit their honor shame paradigm but then jesus came along and he redefined greatness, paving the way to embrace humility as a key virtue. And the, uh, other secular authors, um, such as Jim Collins, have argued and demonstrated how the quality of humility is a key contributing factor to greatness in organizational leadership. Now, it's not that we're all humble nowadays and the Romans weren't. It's, the, the, it's that the message of the cross, the example of Jesus himself, has confronted and shaped our assumptions to the extent that today we can see the glory and greatness in what could otherwise have been seen as weakness, the unassuming and humble service of others, even at cost to ourselves. The world before Christ was a very different world from the one that you and I inhabit today. The message of the cross of Christ confronted that world and began to change it profoundly. Uh, in a, a world of ingrained hierarchy where justice meant the strong and privileged using their strength to maintain their privilege, where the cross represented weakness and nothingness of those at the bottom. In this world, the idea that God might let go of his advantages, might humble himself, take the form of a slave, experience the shame of crucifixion was utter foolishness. And yet, it was, in fact, the power of God. And some grasped that fact and were transformed by that power. Slowly, the idea of God on a cross began to seem less and less foolish and weak because the reality was, the undeniable reality, is that it did seem to have power. The message was changing the world. In the end, it conquered the hearts and minds of the world and reshaped it in profound ways. Um, another author, uh, Tom Holland, he's a uh, an atheist or maybe an agnostic. Um, he tells the 2,000-year story of how this foolish message about a weak crucified king came to revolutionise the world, and he calls his book Dominion because it is an ironic story of dominion: how faith in a man crucified by the Romans ends up taking over the Roman Empire and really forming the Western mind. Uh, Like Glenn in his book, The Air We Breathe, Tom Holland helps us see how Christian we all are, regardless of what we believe about Jesus, because of the way we see the world. And one of the most significant aspects of that is how we have come to see the power of humility and service, uh, the glory and dignity of service to others. The fact that we see the cross as a symbol of love and hope and redemption is testimony to the power of God in the cross of Christ. Uh, And I want to encourage you today to recognize that power, to see how it has shaped who you are, the way you think, the values that you have, Uh, but also to see what it could mean for you. As you trust in the cross of Christ, it can be your hope and your redemption. As you follow the way of the cross, jesus can lead you into true greatness Uh, it's a kind of greatness and power that has changed the world and can still change the world